It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, the science behind love, marriage, and relationships. Why does someone fall in love with one person rather than another? Are we naturally drawn to some people but not others? We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, uh, same ethnic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. But you know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background, same level of intelligence, same level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. Helen Fisher is a biological anthropologist who studies love and relationships. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today, we're featuring an encore episode from Aspen Ideas Health. Consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. To understand why people choose particular partners, Helen Fisher scanned the brains of people in different stages of love. The result turned up four styles of thought and behavior that help explain the biological underpinnings of romantic love, love addiction, adultery, and divorce. In this episode, she reveals the secret behind keeping a long-term partnership happy, why the later you marry, the more likely you'll stay married, and what keeps love alive. Here's her conversation with Olga Kazan, a writer for The Atlantic, who covers health, gender, and science. How did you come to be researching this? How did you come to be working for Match? And and how did you get into this? Oh, I wish I had a sexy answer to that. (laughs) And I don't. Um, I'm basically, uh, I'm an identical twin. And when I was um, in college and in graduate school, everybody believed that all behavior was learned, that there's nothing came out of your biology. And I knew perfectly well that that wasn't true. And I began, when I wrote wrote my PhD dissertation, I thought to myself, if there's any part of of human behavior at all that would have a biological component, it would be our relationships. Because it's our relationships, our love, our sex, our feelings of attachment that bring us together into a pair bond and drive our DNA into tomorrow, having babies. So bottom line is, um, I, I, I thought that if there was any part at all of human behavior that would have a biological component, it would be something having to do with our reproductive strategy. Not sexy, but that's the truth. And so did, did, did MASH.com approach you and say, you know, we'd like to, you, you know, your help in, in, in getting people together so that they're yeah. actually right for each other? Uh, they, they, it was um, 11 years ago. I'm the longest standing member of MASH. I've gone through seven presidents. And... Oh. Uh, um, they called me two days before Christmas. I live in New York City. And uh, they wanted me to come in two days after Christmas. Uh, nothing happens in New York City at Christmas. I said, well, sure, okay. And, uh, and I went in uh, to their office, and all these people piled in, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Was this a think tank? Were there other academics, etc.? And as it turned out, it was the CEO on down. And in the middle of the morning, um, somebody, I think it was the president, um, said to me, he said, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I said, I don't know. Uh, nobody knows. Uh, you know, you tend to fall in love with somebody for, who has your... Uh, well, timing is important. Um, proximity is important. At my age, lighting would be important. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, we tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, uh, 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 same ethnic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. 
Uh, your childhood always plays a role. Um, your goals uh, play a role, whether you want to have children or not, etc. But you know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background, same level of intelligence, same level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think, when people say we have chemistry, what do they mean by that? Are we naturally drawn to some people rather than others? And that started me um, uh, in, a, in a study of the biology of personality. So I created a questionnaire uh, that has now been taken by 14 million people. And I've done two brain scanning studies of it. And, and we can go into, into that. But that's how it started. Okay, so and about those brain scanning studies. So one of the one of my most favorite books of yours is Why Him, Why Her, um, and it's actually a book that really helped me at one point in my life. Um, and it, it really breaks uh, people down into four basically personality types, and so, and a lot of it is based on these these brain scans. Um, so can you describe how you did that, how you found those types, and and what the types are? Sure. Um, first of all, I I just want to thank everybody for coming. I didn't I thought it would be just the two of us here at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> the belly up bar at 7.30 at night, I said, I don't think so. But I'm, I'm grateful for you and welcome. Um, so uh, just backing up for a moment, the reason Match called me is that I and my colleagues are the first in the world to put people in brain scanners who are madly in love, who have been rejected in love, and who have, are in love long term. And you can remain in love, not just loving, but in love long term. But you've got to pick the right person. And this is what uh, Olga is talking about. I wanted to know, people will say we have chemistry. Could nature have been so sloppy as to not pull us naturally towards certain kinds of people? So what I did is, uh, the short version is, I think that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. So there's all kinds of systems in the brain. Uh, most of them keep the eyes uh, uh, blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with any personality trait. So the first thing I did is I went through the last, I don't know, 40 years of, of medical literature looking for any trait at all linked with any biological system. Now, we all know that assertiveness is linked with the testosterone system, that verbal skills are linked with the estrogen system, but there's a lot of others. Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding that these four broad styles of thinking and behaving are linked with these a constellation of personality traits. And um, so, for example, if you're very high uh, on uh, expressive of the dopamine system in the brain, you tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible, um, and actually Democrats. Um, <laughs> and uh, I even know where they live. I know how many orgasms they have. Like, I know everything about <laughs> Americans. <laughs> and um, if you're very, and, and that kind of person, a high dopamine style of thinking, is drawn to people like themselves. Uh, they want somebody who's going to walk into this bar, listen to this speech, then walk to the top of the mountain at night and do whatever. Um, the high serotonin type style of thing. I don't like types because we're a combination of all of them. Um, uh, a style of thinking and behaving uh, is associated with being traditional, conventional, following the rules, respecting authority. Concrete thinkers rather than theoretical tend to be more religious. Um, love rules, schedules, plans, etc. Republican or not? Republican. Okay. Yes, Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Have less sex, more orgasms, actually, too. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, they live in the Midwest and in the South. I've got maps. I'm, you know, I, I got 14 million uh, 
uh, uh, um, zip codes, so I, I know a lot about them. But anyway, the bottom line is they're drawn to people like themselves. A good example would be Mitt Romney and Anne Romney, or Hu Chindao, the uh, former president of uh, China, or um, uh, George Washington. I think I, I, I'm hooked now on biographies of of leaders, and I talk a lot actually to understanding leaders. So they're drawn to people like themselves. In those two cases, similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites attract. High uh, testosterone style of thinking uh, is naturally drawn to the high estrogen and vice versa. The high testosterone style is um, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at what we call rule-based systems, everything from chemistry, engineering, computers, math, um, uh, and they're drawn to the high estrogen, which is um, uh, um, intuitive, imaginative, a very contextual thinkers, uh, uh, people skills, verbal skills, uh, um, empathetic, uh, intuitive, etc. I think Hillary and Bill Clinton are example. She's the high testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> he is the high estrogen, you know. The whole world knows he can't stop talking. Uh, you know, his autobiography is uh, 900 and something pages. You know, he feels everybody's pain. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we've all, all been wondering when we're going to have our first female president. I think we've had our first female president <laughs> with Bill Clinton. I think Lincoln was, I think, a very high estrogen man also. We're all a combination of all of them. So the issue is to what degree... Uh, and it's the combination of them. And this is why my personality questionnaire is so different from any other one on the market today, because they all put you in a bucket. And the brain doesn't work in buckets. It works in systems that are all in combinations. And it's very valuable to know not only what you are, but what you're not. So talk about the, like, for, for example, a, a serotonin gap is something that you mentioned yeah. that comes up if you're in the, like, you have a mismatch of, of styles. Yeah. It's so interesting because we had this conversation. I'm just starting to go out with the guy, and he's very high, uh, he's a journalist, well-known journalist, actually, and, and um, he um, is very high on the dopamine, as I am, so that works fine. And uh, he's very high on testosterone, and I'm high on estrogen, and that also works fine. But he's much higher on the serotonin skill, scale. And here's an example. We were going to the movies, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I said to him, do you have any water? And he said, yeah, I got some water in my pack. And I said, oh, great, we can drink the water in the movie. He said, oh, no, we can't. You can't bring food and drink into a movie. You've got to buy it at the, at the snack bar. And that's serotonin? And I, walked, I said, whoa. And he said, Helen, it's the serotonin gap. Hmm. And so what I want to start doing is our psychologists, are generally, we go back to our childhood over and over and over. Some things really don't have to do with your childhood. They have to do with who you are. And if you begin to understand that a person really is a certain way, um, uh, uh, you can reach them where you live. I don't even believe in the golden rule, uh, to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. I believe in the platinum rule. Do unto others as they want to have done unto themselves, mm -hmm. and you can win. You've got to learn who somebody is and then work within their system, and you can reach anyone. So you also, I mean, that that kind of applies to the business world also, and you mentioned that right. you're doing some business consulting now. Tell us a little bit about how that applies to different styles of leaders. I mean, you mentioned a few already, but... Yeah. Um, uh, I'll tell a story about uh, uh, Deloitte. Okay. Uh, Deloitte uses my uh, paradigm, and they've trained uh, 190,000 people with it. And... Um, 
I was being introduced one night. I had to make a speech to a whole pile of them, uh, uh, about 1,400 of them in Las Vegas. And um, he told the story, and I just was sitting behind the curtain listening. Was, he told the story that um, he had heard me speak, and he knew this new way of thinking about personality. And he was spent all evening, the following morning, he was going to make a big pitch to a major international bank. And uh, he had put the whole deck, the whole PowerPoint together. Everybody was on their way to bed. And he suddenly remembered something that I had said. And he suddenly realized that he was make, doing the wrong kind of pitch. He realized who these people were. And I, th I think that um, he was giving the huge theory first, which the high dopamine type would really like. But he realized he was talking to some high serotonin people who like the details. They like the details. They like everything. They, you know, skip the big idea, the details. So he called them all back and redid the entire PowerPoint. And then he said to the audience, and the following morning, I made a million dollars. So bottom line is, you know, if you can figure out who people are, and that I train them to, to look at LinkedIn, to, to look at their emails, uh, to look what they do in their spare time, uh, and you can begin to get a feel for the basic biology of somebody. And then I did a study of 178,000 um, uh, people um, to find out what words these people use. And so I say to various people in business, don't listen to just the content of the conversation, but listen to the words that they use as they are expressing that content. And you can begin to understand, once you know it, uh, who, who somebody is. And then, um, you know, you can begin to, if you know the brain, you can reach anyone. Well, I want to pivot just a little bit to talk about slow love and oh, this yeah. this kind of concept that, you know, people having one night stands, even, you know, friends with benefits, it's not necessarily a dead end. Um, can you kind of explain how you how you found that and why that is? Yeah. Thank you, Olga. This is my favorite thing. <laughs> um, um, I call it slow love. Um, I do an annual study with Match uh, called Singles in America. We do not poll the match population. Uh, we poll the American population. So it's a representative sample of Americans based on the US census. And uh, every year we do it, we're in our eighth year now. It'll start in August, ruins Christmas for me, destroys it. Um, but anyway, every single year we ask some questions that are trend questions. We want to see if times have changed. And every year we ask some new questions. Among the 10 uh, trend questions that we ask are, um, I'm leading up to telling you that the future is good, so th that's the bottom line. Um, the, um, every year I ask the question, um, have you ever had a one-night stand? And over 50% of American singles have. Now, not necessarily last year, but over the course of their experiences. Over 50% of Americans have had a friends with benefits, and over 50% of, of Americans have had a long-term live-in relationship before they marry. Americans think this is reckless. And then I read an article that 67% of people who are living together long-term are terrified of divorce. We are terrified of divorce. And it began to occur to me that this is not recklessness, this is caution. That today we want to get to know every single thing about a person before we tie the knot. Mm -hmm. Where marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship, now it's the finale. And I thought to myself, if there's this long, what I call the pre-commitment stage, or what I call commitment light, L-I-T-E, commitment light, 
during which you get to know every single thing about somebody. You can get rid of the bad relationships before you marry. So wouldn't that mean then that by the time you walk down that aisle, you know who you got, you know who you want who you got, and you think you can keep who you got. And so maybe we're going to see in America, and I think in the world, um, uh, better marriages because of this long pre-commitment stage. So I did a study of 1,100 married people, and I asked a lot of questions. But one of the questions was, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. So I've also looked at divorce in 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, going back to 1947. And these are two data points, one being the fact that everywhere in the world uh, where it's not arranged marriages, um, the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. And so here we have a second data point, this long pre-commitment stage before you tie the knot. I think these are two huge worldwide demographic change uh, trends that are enabling people to make finer decisions when the time comes, marrying later and marrying the right person. But you have got to meet that person. That's the biggest problem on the internet today. And the president of Match, they all know this. We, you know, the, more, the longer you stay on these sites, the more likely you are to not meet anybody. And the other thing is it's called cognitive overload. People will go out person after person after person, and the brain is not built. There's a sweet spot between five and nine people. And after that, the more people you meet, the less likely you are to fall for any of them. So the two things that I would say if you are in the dating world is, number one, when you meet, get out and meet the person right off the bat. Second, give them a chance. People are so nervous in the beginning. Give them a chance. The, think of reasons to say yes. Overlook the negative. Positive illusions. Get to know them a second time and a third time. And after you've met nine people, stop and get to know at least one of them better if you really want love. Huh. All right. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure you guys will probably have some questions, so we're going to take some audience questions. And we're going to have mic runners coming to people, and I think there's a hand up there. That's the one I saw first. Uh, or whoever. I can't really see you. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you talked about uh, all the traits that men have and how they're different than what we would expect. What's going to happen when college campuses today, not when, but college campuses today are 51% female. How is this going to play out? It's in very interesting. Um, you know, college is really built for women. Women, are, I, I wrote a whole book called The First Sex, The Natural Talents of Women and How They're Changing the World. Feminists hated the book because they don't want to believe that there's biological differences in the brain. Um, um, uh, I study the brain and I study human evolution. Women bring a huge amount to the job market that is really important. Uh, men and women are like two feet. They need each other to get ahead, but they are not alike. And college is really built for women because women tend to be more patient. They're more verbally skilled. Um, uh, 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 they're better at sitting. They're better at listening. They're better at talking. And so, so much of our college is really built for women. I'm not surprised that there are more. Yes, go ahead. Oh, well, what about the trends of trading marriage? What we're really 
moving towards is the double-income family. I'm really excited about that. You know, people are all so interested in... Um, uh, in the past, um, a woman needed to marry up. Um, for the last 10,000 years, a woman's only career choice was to marry well. She needed a man uh, who could do the providing while she was in the home. For millions of years before that, um, in hunting and gathering societies, I studied them, uh, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 60 to 80% of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule. And for millions of years, uh, women were, were regarded as just as sexual and social and economically powerful as men, the double income family. As we have moved away from the agrarian life, we are in the middle of a marriage revolution. We are right now um, moving away from 10,000 years of the agrarian tradition where a woman was, where the man was the head of the household till death do us part. You can't move, you can't take half, of, you can't cut the cow in half. Uh, you can't move half the wheat field out of town. So when we began to settle down on the farm, women lost their ancient roles as fully economically powerful partners. And we, came, we began to evolve a lot of new ideas. Um, uh, virginity at marriage, arranged marriage, a woman's place is in a home, man is the sole provider, uh, honor thy husband till death do us part. And then with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we are shedding all of those traditions. It's the most powerful social trend in the world today, is women piling into the job market, much more powerful than the technological revolution in terms of marriage and the family. And what we're seeing now is double income families. And in something like between one-third, almost a third of American families where um, both the man and the woman work, the woman makes more money than the man and women are getting more education. And so women's roles are changing and men's roles are changing too. Men's roles are expanding. They're spending much more time in the home. They're spending more time helping to raise the children and we're seeing a different kind of marriage, but they will keep marrying. We're built for that. Oh, not to bring this crowd down, but what do you think of President Trump's brain? <laughs> I just did a thing for the New York Times. I, I never heard the question, what do I think of Trump's brain? Well, I mean, I'm like everybody else. I think he's a narcissistic megalomaniac. He's a nutcase. He's, you know, he's a nutcase. Uh, um, and I apologize to those who uh, don't agree with me, but you asked me my opinion, that's my opinion. He's also very high testosterone. He's very high testosterone man. He's a builder, you know, uh, I mean, literally a builder of buildings. He's got to have very good spatial uh, skills for that. Um, he, uh, he does have some estrogen in him. He, he, has, a, uh, he has a very, um, uh, 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 he's, he can be believable to people. He's very much like Putin. That's why they understand each other. They're both very high testosterone uh, men. Uh, very impulsive. That impulsivity is the dopamine system. So if I had to peg him, odd that he's running as a Republican, though, because uh, that's serotonin. Uh, that's the concrete, the traditional, the conv I don't actually think he is a Republican, personally. Um, I don't think he's anything. I don't even think he's a political guy. And he's a guy who wants power. 
He's a, he's a, he's a power guy. And I think if, 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 he, if I put him in my scanner and I had him take my questionnaires, he'd, he'd be off the charts in the testosterone system and the, uh, and the dopamine system. And this is why he and Putin understand each other. They're both high testosterone. Putin didn't understand um, uh, um, uh, Obama. Uh, Obama's much higher estrogen. He's a lot like Lincoln, actually. He wanted to negotiate it. He wanted consensus. It took him a long time to decide what he was going to do. Um, he wanted to involve everybody in it. He had a great, you know, he could have gone to a white shoe law firm and instead he's trying to help people in the poorest parts of Detroit and, uh, uh, you know, other parts of Illinois, etc. Um, and uh, uh, an entirely and this is why I think Putin didn't understand Obama. Putin thought Obama was weak. He's not weak. He just leads differently. <laughs> I have a question. Um, your point about where are you? Uh, right over here. I thank you. Hi. Um, I get to drink after that question. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So you made the point about um, the benefit of uh, delaying marriage yes. for longevity of the relationship. Yes. You also, uh, the previous question asked about you know, women and the changing, and you answered about the changing roles of women in terms of income and moving from an agrarian society. Yes. So if you combine the two and you look at it like, okay, people are going to pair up older woman versus younger man, uh, equal age, older man versus younger woman. What's, what, what do you see evolving and what's the best pairing? Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, I started in on this and then I wandered off it. Um, um, a couple of weeks ago when Macron uh, in France won the election and he's married to a woman who's 24 years older and Trump is married to a woman who is 24 years younger. And um, so they quoted me in the Times. They did not put this quote in, which I, I would have hoped that they would, which was, um, Macron's marriage is the marriage of the future, and Trump's marriage is the marriage of the past. More, and when I study people in this Singles in America study, 40% of men um, would be willing to marry a woman who is 10 or more years older than them. Um, uh, uh, over 60 to 70% of men would marry a woman who had more education, who made, no, who had considerably more education, who had considerably, um, who was considerably more intellectual, and who made considerably more money. So this is going to change. They once, I mean, we come from an agrarian society where the man was the power and women needed that power. But in hunting and gathering societies, for example, a friend of mine asked a man, would you marry a woman who was smarter than you? And he said, of course I would. She'd make me smart too. And we're going to see more and more, this is the thing about the educational thing, we're going to see more and more women who are down on Wall Street making the money, while the man is making very much less money, but he's a psychiatrist, I mean, he's got prestige, or he's a violinist at the, at the Philharmonic, but uh, he doesn't have the money. And, and I've, I make a lot of speeches to uh, uh, executive women, and I, I'm always interested in how they've managed this, because we're just, in this marriage revolution, we still don't know how to handle a, a relationship in which the woman's making all the money. And, um, and they 
they all often say exactly the same thing to me. They say, Helen, I knew he was always going to be a primary school teacher. I admired him for that. I make the money, and that's... And so they, 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 they know this before they go into it, and they somehow work it out. And we're going to see more and more of that as women become more economically powerful. So as a follow-up, if you were going to advise my three daughters <laughs> over the next 12 years about feeling pressured to get married at a younger age, what would you tell them? Well, I, I, I don't think it's... Um, uh, uh, the highest divorce rate is in people um, in their very early 20s. Uh, the highest divorce rate is also in the entire Bible Belt. And the highest divorce rate is in the Bible Belt, not because these people are religious, but because uh, religious people feel that they should have sex after marriage. And, um, and so they marry very young in order to have their sex and their partnerships. And so they don't know themselves, they don't know uh, their partner, and uh, they don't know how to handle problems yet. And so um, all the data show that the longer you wait to marry uh, and the more time you spend with the partner before you wed, uh, the more likely you are to uh, be able to sustain that marriage long term. If, if a young person came to you and asked you to help them know whether they're in love, how would you answer that question? And um, if they're not sure, would you, do you think that giving them maybe L-dopa might push them over the edge? <laughs> I wouldn't give them L-dopa um, or even cocaine. That'll drive it up, but not for long. You know, the following morning you wake up, you're not high anymore on the cocaine, so I'm told, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, okay, uh, people have come to me and, and, and asked me that. And the first thing I do is I ask them about the relationship and all of that. Uh, but I also will list the characteristics of, of romantic love and see if they have them. And by the way, um, when I ask, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, over 50% of people uh, believe in love at first sight, and over 35% have experienced it. So it's not impossible, and it's actually rather easy to explain love at first sight. But a lot of people don't have it. And, um, but anyway, here are the basic characteristics of intense, romantic, passionate love. Not the sex drive, not attachment. First thing that happens is a person takes on what I call special meaning. Everything about that person becomes special. Their car is different from every other car in the parking lot. The street they live on is different. The music that they everything is different. Then you focus on them, you know. And I would ask people before I put them in the brain scanner, what do you not like about your partner? And they can list it, but then they sweep that aside and just focus, focus on what they really do like. As Chaucer said, love is blind. And then uh, intense elation when things are going well, mood swings into terrible despair when you don't get an email, you don't get a call, you don't get a text, they, don't, they go, they disappear on you for the weekend, etc. Um, uh, intense energy, you can walk all night and talk till dawn, uh, butterflies in the stomach, weak knees, uh, dry mouth, uh, things. Um, uh, 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 dependency, um, separation anxiety, you don't like to be apart, frustration attraction when they don't call, don't write, you like them more, because actually what's happened is you've driven up the dopamine system. Um, but the three main characteristics are uh, somebody's camping in your head, 
You think about them all the time. Uh, uh, and yes, you do want to have sex with them, but the second characteristic, what you really want is for uh, emotional union, for them to call, to write, to ask you out, to tell you that they love you. And, and last, you're highly motivated to win them, just like any other drug. What people will do when they are in love is out of this world. But basically, from a Darwinian perspective, you're fighting to win life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner. Last but not least, romantic love is very uh, hard to control. As Stendhal once said, he said, love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. So if you're not in love, keep on, ride roller coasters with them for God's sakes. Take a vacation to different places. Jack up that dopamine system. Make love to him for Christ's sakes, you know, and get to know him. And eventually, uh, it may happen. <laughs> We're built for it. <laughs> I think we have time for one more quick question. Yeah, probably we're in in the seventies. Remember ZPG? Where are you? Over here. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Mem remember ZPG, zero population growth. Okay. And and I guess in China now, and this is the question is based on why do people have kids until they have a male? And now oh. what's happening in China is there's so many males that they can't ever have a chance of getting married. So Yeah, that's a, that's a real problem. Uh, that's an agrarian um, thing, because in agrarian farming societies, the man was the head of the household, the man was the one that did the inheriting, uh, uh, the man was the one that uh, 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 and would own the farm, and so they wanted to pass on uh, their DNA to, to males. And so female infanticide has been around for thousands of years in the in the farming world. And it's interesting, I read an article about, um, maybe even a couple years ago, that in, in China today, they're beginning to want to have a girl, not a boy. And the reason is that as they get older, they now know that a girl uh, will help them in their old age, whereas a boy might not. So that is one of those agrarian belief systems that will slowly, slowly, die off as women become more economically uh, powerful. So why don't I sh close with this? Yeah, sure. So we're all interested in the future. And I'll just say this one line. Uh, it's the last line of my book. Um, you know, any understanding of the future, any determinant of the future, I can't remember exactly, but any determinant of the future needs to uh, take into account the unquenchable, adaptable, and primordial human drive to love. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Helen Fisher has studied love and relationships for four decades. She's a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and has written several books, including Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. Olga Kazan is a staff writer for The Atlantic. She covers health, gender, and science. Their conversation was held at Aspen Ideas Health in 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. If you are inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Register today at aspenideas.org. 
Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health Team and produced by Natalie Jones, Marcy Krivenin, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.